0: Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews as we continue our journey together through this great book. And today's text is the reason why I have not preached Hebrews in all of my ministry before, because Hebrews includes some of the most severe warnings in all of the Bible. and uh, They are difficult to preach uh, not only are they countercultural, but you want, don't want to make the mistake of leaving someone who has trouble with assurance unsettled unnecessarily. So you pray for me as I t- attempt to preach this text today, because there 's a lot here that we all need to hear, not that we necessarily want to hear, but there 's truth here, and we need the truth. So here now, the word of the Lord as we read from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and and an abiding one therefore do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward for you have need of endurance Father, we thank you for this word. It is a hard word, but it is a word all of us need to hear today. And so we pray that as the word of the Lord goes out, it will not return to you void or empty, but it will prosper where you send it. It will accomplish your purposes. It will cause, just as rain and snow come from the heavens and water the earth, and cause it to bring forth bud and flower. We pray that your word as it goes forth today will produce fruit in us that redounds to your glory and that calls everyone to examine his or her own relationship with the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was about in the seventh grade in elementary school, and this was a long time ago, I mean far longer than I would like to tell you, but I remember reading Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I can remember visually trying to figure out how this guy must be Jonathan Edwards, because in the seventh grade, the only Jonathan Edwards I knew sang a rock record uh, called Sunshine Go Away Today. Uh, I don't remember, but he was a pop singer. But we read this, I don't know if it was in history or sociology or what, we read this, and a a lot of people think that Jonathan Edwards on his famous sermon, he preached it with almost a sadistic glee to this bewildered congregation. And the presupposition is Edwards enjoyed afflicting his people and the sermon was preached with a pulpit-pounding vehemence. Hellfire and brimstone, the very definition of it. But such thinking is ignorant and wide of the mark. Shouting was not Edwards' style at all. It's a matter of historical fact that Edwards quietly read his sermons from tiny pieces of paper in a monotone voice that he held up in front of him. Neither uh, did Edwards enjoy such pre- preaching, but it was necessary and necessitated by the fa- famous halfway covenant of... Uh, that Edwards was working against uh, the influence in his church. But we must understand that Jonathan Edwards' passionate love for God and his flock was the reason he emplo- employed every tool in his considerable stores of logic and metaphor to plead for his people's souls, sinners in the hands of an angry God. He was less concerned with God's wrath than with his grace which was freely extended to sinners who repent. Jonathan Edwards gave his people a whiff of the sulfurs of hell that they might deeply inhale the fragrance of grace. As we approach this text today, I sort of want to jump in the middle and sort of clarify something here. And I want you to look very carefully at verse 26. And the exhortation that's given in verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what do you mean? Go on sinning deliberately, how so? And in what way are you talking about me going on sinning willfully or sinning deliberately? What is meant specifically, especially by the phrase deliberate sin what is the pastoral problem that the author of Hebrews is addressing now getting down to that question is key to our understanding of this passage and either being wrongly discouraged by it or rightly encouraged by it so let me go ahead and give you the answer to that question what is the deliberate sin that the author of Hebrews is warning us against going on in And that sin is the sin of rejecting Christ, of ceasing to believe on him in whom alone is life, eternal, or of failing to continue in faith in Jesus, of looking for another way to stand accepted before God than in the righteousness of Christ. So what the whole argument of this book has been about, as we've ventured through it, is that Jesus is better. He is superior in every way to what the old covenant had to offer. You, you remember that this letter is written to a church plant, a struggling church plant, perhaps in Rome or maybe in Jerusalem or maybe in Alexandria. Nobody knows for sure, but the church is predominantly made up of Jewish believers and they're under pressure and their whole way of life has been turned upside down and they're losing people, and people are, are leaving the church and returning back to the old covenant and Judaism. And so this author is continually coming back to warn these people of what they're doing. And the idea of deliberate sin here, it's not all of us struggle with sin, if we're honest. All of us fall into sin daily. Uh, but the deliberate sin here is a decision, a decisive moment in which I say, I reject Jesus Christ, and I reject him as the way for which I can be right with God, and I turn to some other god or some other uh, idol in an attempt to find the same thing or better. And that's the sin that he is testifying against today. So keep that in your mind. It's hugely important for you to remember and understand this passage. So the whole argument is Jesus is better, so what he's warning against is you deciding that there's something better than Jesus, or that there's another way to stand right before God other than Jesus. In other words, failing to put your faith in Jesus Christ and persisting in that unbelief. Now, it's hugely important if you approach this passage thinking it's about someone who truly trusts in Jesus and yet is struggling with some ongoing or besetting sin, you may well be deeply unsettled by this passage in a way that the author did not intend. True Christians are always struggling with some habitual sin. And if that's your struggle today, let me encourage you to reach out and seek counsel for someone to help you with a a pastor or elders in this church. He's talking about, in this passage, not discouraging you, but someone who along the way, who once trusted in Jesus, no longer does. They've given up on Jesus. They are looking elsewhere for their hope. And he's deeply concerned about that. And I have to tell you, I'm old enough and been in the ministry long enough to see people do that. I've seen four or five people walk away, walk away, just walk away, renouncing any kind of relationship with Jesus. And so looking away from Jesus is spiritual disaster, and that's what this passage is about. So let's jump right into it. There are a number of things that I want you to see in these verses. Uh, The author of Hebrews utilizes a masterful mix of warnings and promised rewards and human examples in encouraging these believers to persevere in the faith. He employs all three to good effect. He balances here a harsh warning in verses 26 to 31 arguably the harshest in the book with a gentle reminder of past success verses 32 to 34 and then he rounds out the whole by calling the struggling community um, back to a life lived in the light of the parousia or that is the second coming of Jesus Christ and it follows roughly the same outline as another warning in chapter 6 verses 1 through 20 a severe warning softening of the warning by a reminder of the community's past ministries and an encouragement to take seriously the promises of God so let's go then and look at this passage we've already talked about verse 26 and so we're going to move on um so a person has rejected Jesus and uh what remains for this person is anything but pleasant The writers mention of a fearful expectation uh, of judgment and of raging fire images that continue to play off Old Covenant imagery and also communicates eschatological realities. The concept of fear in biblical literature often describes a human response to the awesomeness and power of God. Here in Hebrews 10, the expectation of a certain judgment is said to be fearful. Much more than a mere feeling, this expectation has to do with an awareness of an impending event, God's reckoning with sinners' defiant rebellion against His grace. And so the author describes the nature of that judgment by alluding to Isaiah 26 and verse 11. And this passage suggests, in its original context, a contrast between the righteous who walk in the ways of the Lord and long for his presence and the wicked who go on doing evil in spite of God's grace toward them. The former look forward to the judgments of God on earth and the latter belong to the ranks of God's enemies for whom fire is reserved. And then in verses 28 and 29, he uses an a fortiori or argument. He argues from the lesser to the greater. And he tells us that the, he presents an assertion that his hearers will recognize as unquestionably valid. Anyone who rejects the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He's alluding most directly here to Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 2 through 7. This passage from the Pentateuch proclaims that those who violate the covenant by turning away from the Lord's commands and worshiping other gods must be put to death. That is the punishment to be carried out without mercy. The author of Hebrews wishes to remind his hearers who knew the old covenant the extreme penalty for rejection of God's revealed will under the old covenant. That, however, presents a lesser of two important situations. The greater situation is being underlined in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29. The greater situation, of course, is the rejection of the new covenant high priest and his sacrifice, his offering. Seeing the words, how much more, at the beginning of verse 29, those who have turned away from the work of grace accomplished in God's Son are faced with a more serious situation than even the apostates under the Old Covenant era. The New Covenant is a better covenant than the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant priest is greater than the priest of the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant sacrifice is superior in every way to the Old Covenant sacrifices. Therefore, it is logical that those who reject the superior work of God's Son deserve even greater punishment than those who rebelled under an older revelation. Inherent to this argument is the assumption that those who have heard the message of the gospel have a greater opportunity and greater resources for a response of obedience. The rebellion of those who have turned away from the gospel is depicted in terms of three actions graphically expressed. They have trampled the Son of God underfoot. The metaphor of trampling on someone was used in both classical literature and the Greek of the Old Testament as an image of utter disdain. It is like spitting in someone's face. Spitting in someone's face. Those who have rejected the gospel have shown the lowest form of contempt, not only for a set of teachings, but for the very person of the Son of God. The rebels have treated as unholy things the blood of the covenant. The word translated unholy, koinos, can mean common, defiled, unclean. In the context of Levitical purity laws, it especially referred to that which was unfit, or ceremonially impure. Under the old covenant, great emphasis was placed on the fitness of the sacrifices used to atone for the sins. And the author of Hebrews has gone to great lengths here to demonstrate that Christ's own blood was superior to that uh, sacrifices under the old system. Therefore, for the apostates to reject his sacrifice, constitutes their declaration that it is an unfit sacrifice for their sins. based on broader uh, contextual concerns, we can translate the phrase that sanctified him by which one is sanctified, suggesting that those in this condition, in reality, have not been sanctified by Christ. Those who have truly been sanctified or set apart by the offering of the Son of God have been perfected for all time. And then the third image, those rejecting Christ and his sacrifice have insulted the spirit of grace, caused him outrage. That's a bad thing to do. That's a horrible thing to do. During Jesus' earthly ministry, we know that there were those who rejected his work and his words, suggesting that his power originated with Satan rather than with the Holy Spirit. Correspondingly, those who turn away from the gospel and the Spirit's promptings toward its reception have blasphemed, denying the gospel's true origin and importance. They have committed a sin with eternal implications eternal impl- implications. In other words, a person who has rejected the gospel, walked away from Christ, abandoning him as a deliberate, willful choice, have put themselves in a position that they are a heartbeat away from a fixed state of eternal reward. And it won't be with Jesus. They will forever be separated from the love of God forever. In verse 30, the author reinforces his assertion of the seriousness of the situation by quoting two brief portions of the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. The song is sung by Moses at the end of his life, eloquently delivered as a warning to the people of Israel by depicting God's judgment toward a faithless people who had turned their back on his covenant. After all he had done for them, they had abandoned him, and God's response was a scathing judgment. The relevance for the uh, audience of Hebrews could not be more striking. Here are the parts of Deuteronomy 32, 35, and 6 which read, It's mine to avenge, I will repay. In due time their foot will slip, their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. The Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees their strength is gone. And no one is left slave or free. So both portions quoted by Hebrews, it's mine to avenge, I will repay. And the Lord will judge his people emphasizes that God himself takes responsibility for judging those who have spurned and rejected the gospel and deserted the community of faith. And so the author in a very terse way concludes, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The word translated fearful or dreadful is phobaron, phobos, which means fear, but it communicates the idea of more than just fear, it's terror. And it's placed for emphasis as the first word in the Greek sentence. To fall in the hands of God speaks both of God's awesome power and the helplessness of the recipients of judgment. There exists no means of escape for those who have willfully rejected the grace of the living one, our Lord Jesus. One of C.S. Lewis's favorite images that I like are one of my favorite of his is that God is not a tame God. He comments on Aslan, the great beast, the figure of Christ in the Chronicles of Narnia. He's not a tame lion. The deep growl, the severe mercy, the uncompromising, firm but smiling gaze. When Aslan speaks no one in the story can question who is in charge. When the lion speaks not only one gets the sense, but one knows nothing more needs to be said. This is really the way things are. And not only will they not be in change, indeed they cannot. For we have bumped up against a greater reality than ourselves and our particular perspective. He is the Lord and he does as he will. He calls children from another world when and to where he desires. He vanquishes foes in his own good time. No one can ever think of sitting in judgment on him. To think of controlling him would be preposterous. The lightning is too powerful to be bottled. The mountain too furious to be captured in a recording. There is a wildness in his nature and he will not be muzzled. The living God has cosmic-sized, power-laden hands, and is dreadful indeed. He will not be tamed by our postmodern repulsion for truth, nor by our aversion of the concept to judgment. We must adjust ourselves to him or face the consequences. The great foolishness of walking away from the gospel, judging Christ is insufficient, lies in this. He has no greater means for dealing with sin. The sacrifice, his work upon the cross, is the best work and only work for dealing with our sins. And all other means are by nature inferior. Those who walk away, there's no hope. None. They are hopeless. And I'm not just giving you a heavy dose of nihilism. I'm giving you some truth. There's no hope. Outside of Jesus Christ, no hope. I wouldn't encourage you to have any hope outside of Jesus Christ. Some of you have been looking for hope forever. It's the next big thing in your life. The next thing, if I can just get a better job, if I can just find a better church, if I can just listen to a better preacher if I can just find better people to hang out with, if I'd married a better person who was smarter or richer or more influenced, if I can just retire and get out of the rat race, if I can just move to that cabin I have up in the mountains and live out my days with nobody bothering me, there's no hope in any of that. None. Zero. Less than zero. None. None. The only hope we have is in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And forever means forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever ad infinitum. Sometimes the sobering reality of the gospel and the rejection of the gospel needs to grip our hearts. We should be weeping for the lost condition, we should be broken for those who are broken in rejecting Christ. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, he doesn't stop here. It's like he gives the most severe, harsh warning in all of Hebrews. But look at how he abruptly changes in the next set of verses. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle. with So So he says, let's go back and look at your life for a moment. Let's remember the past. For the author of Hebrews now encourages his listeners to remember. And he uses their own past commitment as a basis for hearty encouragement. Now, the author is not doing what I learned in Louisiana that people do. It's called crawfishing. You ever heard of somebody crawfishing? Crawfishing is when you make an adamant, declarative statement, and then you spend the rest of your time backing up, you know, Uh, he is not crawfishing. What he's rather doing is he knows these statements ought to scare the liver out of you. And so he comes back to try to encourage this suffering, struggling flock because he loves the people. And he challenges them to remember those earlier days after you receive the light, pinpointing the time frame of their experience of receiving the gospel for the first time. The assertion that they stood their ground in a great contest in the face of suffering speaks of a time of great, perhaps, an even unusual trial. The word contest, athlēsis, from which we get the word athlete, connotes not just a challenge but a difficult struggle. Some New Testament scholars be, believe that the expulsion from Rome under Claudius in 49 A.D., as a possible identification of this experience. Excuse me, it's A.D. 49. Somebody will surely point that out to me. And the experience provided in these verses matches the circumstances we know from the time. Specifically, and I just want to go over how he tries to encourage this congregation by looking at the past. He says, you had endured at least four forms of ill treatment. You had faced public ridicule and persecution. The verb rendered publicly exposed, theatriso, in the Greek, from which we get the word theater, means to bring up on a stage. And the language took it uh, as a figurative meaning to make a public spectacle of. They had been made an item of derision in public both by insult and persecution, both by verbal and physical abuse. Moreover, even when they had not been the objects of such abuse, they felt the pain of identification with those who were so treated. And this solidarity extended from the public square to the prison cell. As the listeners sympathized with those incarcerated, the idea of being affected by the same suffering the same impressions, the same emotions of another person. It is compassion put in action by one rendering aid to somebody in absolute dire straits. Finally, they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. If the eviction from Rome in AD 49 is the social setting behind the author's reminder, the confiscation of property attending such an eviction would be in mind here at various times in the first century Jews were publicly abused as a group and after being evicted from their homes they witnessed widespread looting of their properties and possessions now if it was me and you kicked me out of my home you evicted me I don't think I'd hang around to watch you run off with my stuff and loot it I don't think I could (laughs) be gracious in that regard But these people, listen, these people are showing the reality of their profession by the way they responded to suffering. And so do you. So do you. Some of you are suffering greatly right now. Some of you are going through such hardship, you find it hard to put it in words. Some of you have been abandoned. Some of you are physically uh, struggling today. Some of you are, are mentally confused and struggling uh some of you are spiritually feeling darkness rather than light and you're going through intense suffering whether it be physical emotional spiritual rejection by others persecution for being a believer you're experiencing it and you think because of the dialogue that goes on inside of you that you're not bringing any glory to the lord but if you hold up under it by his grace and by his spirit he gets great glory to himself out I have looked at some of you as your pastor and said, how in the world can that person put one foot in front of another every day? I have looked at you and thought that. And Jesus has been glorified in it. Great glory. Many of you remember Brenda Pinchart and Brenda's long bout with breast cancer that eventually took her life. And I would look at Brenda and I would ask myself the question, where Does she summon up the strength and grace to keep on fighting and keep on coming to church? I said, everything in my being would be screaming, All right, you want to kill me? Take me? I'm just going to sit at home and wait on it. But she didn't have that attitude. Why? Because the spirit of grace was in her. And we saw it in this body. We saw her Sunday after Sunday coming. Up until the Lord called her home. Where do people get that? Where do they get the grace to do that? From Jesus. And so that's what he's telling this church. Look, be encouraged. You've been through a horrible time. You've been through a hard time. And you've joyfully accepted what I've brought into your life. And he said, so such a present example of the attitude of joy in these circumstances shows that you celebrate a greater reality than those immediately observable. The hearers had joy in the midst of persecution because they knew they had better and lasting possessions. And that they had promises by virtue of their identification with the Lord of so much more than they have here. Finally, he ends this text by encouraging us to persevere. Following his reminder of their former boldness in the face of severe persecution, the author exhorts his hearers to stay the course. So don't throw away your confidence. Be bold. Be open. It has really something to do with how you react and act in public. The author, therefore, is encouraging the believers not to retreat from a pattern of public identification with the body of Christ, reminding them that such identification will be rewarded richly. The reward, however, comes to those who accomplish God's will by persevering, persevering excuse me, in their public confession. I've tried to think of a good definition for perseverance for years. And the best one I've been able to come up with is stick-to-itiveness. Sticking to it. Sticking to it. Adhering like glue. Velcroing. Sticking to it. You get knocked down, you get up again. You get knocked down, you get up again. It's sticking to it. And of course, those who are knocked down and get up again do so (coughs) because God is preserving them. The Holy Spirit is actively empowering them to get up and do it again. But he concludes verses 37 and 38 with a quotation found in two Old Testament texts, one out of Isaiah, one out of Habakkuk. They focus on the contrast between the righteous who live by faith and the wicked. The two passages were brought together by the author of Hebrews by virtue of their common reference to the coming of Christ in the Isaiah passage it is the Lord who is coming the day of the Lord to punish the wicked in Habakkuk it is the revelation of judgment that will come both to reward people who live by faith and to deal with the unrighteous and they both carry strong overtones of end times especially Isaiah speaks of both resurrection and comprehensive judgment The Habakkuk passage also lends itself for application to the second coming of Christ since it speaks of the end. Originally, that prophecy concerned the destruction of Israel at the hand of the Chaldeans. The Lord instructs the prophet to write Revelation on tablets and assures that though the fulfillment lingers, it will surely come at an appointed time. And so Habakkuk follows with a contrast between a wicked person and a, who has a crooked soul and the righteous one who lives by faith. And the longer I live, the more I'm beginning to understand. Faith is everything. Why is faith everything? Faith is not really something I conjure up. It's not a work I do. It's a gift of God. But faith is everything because by faith I have access to. To Christ and all the benefits from Him. By faith, I can rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit to enable me to persevere. How do you go on in the Christian life? By faith. You begin the Christian life by faith in Jesus. You continue the Christian life by faith in Jesus. You endure in the Christian life by faith in Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson says we persevere through faith and never apart from it. Perseverance in the Christian life is always through faith. By faith we live. By faith we're saved. By faith we live. And so he's given us a key for persevering in the Christian life. And so what the writer is saying to this church is your hope ultimately is in the coming of the Lord. You know, sometimes we get caught up On living in this earth that we have what the Bible calls a temporal perspective on life that is our time and not an eternal perspective on life a temporal perspective makes us edgy and anxious and fearful because we're afraid of what we're gonna lose we're afraid of any kind of reversal we're afraid of any kind of you know as as I watch the media as much as I can stand and I can hardly stand it but as I watch what I can one of the things that's standing out to me is the increasing antipathy or hatred of our country for Christians persecution is coming it's coming and then we will have to decide what's most important for us Are the temporal things we enjoy every day and we enjoy having a good life and there's nothing wrong with enjoying having a good life but if it's taken all away can you still enjoy Jesus? Can you still enjoy life? I'm beginning to sense that there's going to be a a hard and fast drawing line between those who really love Jesus and those who are playing games who are here for the benefits who are here looking for their best life now. I think we're going to see an increase in persecution. And I think what we've got to do, what we've got to learn to do in every situation, whether it's weal or woe, you've got to keep your eyes on Jesus. You have to keep your eyes on Jesus all the time. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word today. It is truly living and alive and powerful. We pray that it will work its way into our hearts, that the seed planted today will grow, bring forth it, bud and flower in our lives. And may it be a testament to your grace and your goodness. And now, Father, as we continue worshiping you today, may we do so by giving generously in response to your unspeakable gift. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.